0: So, I'm now going to commit sacrilege by admitting that I actually like this episode. Not a lot. It's just, you know, decent, like most Enterprise episodes are. It's just kind of there. It's not actively bad or aggravating. It's not lamentation-worthy. And it's certainly not up there with, say, Shuttlepod 1. But I would say this is probably the second best episode I've seen so far of Season 1. Make of that what you will. I do think a lot of that comes on the strength of two things. Number one... It doesn't take itself seriously at all, which works. If you're going to do comedy, you need to embrace it properly, and I actually think they do a decent job of doing so here. The are never really portrayed as a serious threat, with one notable exception, and they shouldn't be, because they're not. The the second thing that makes me like this episode is the guest star cast. We have Ethan Phillips as the main bad guy Ulis. We have Jeffrey Combs, who is, as always, awesome. And Clint Howard. Now, some of you may not remember him. He played Bullock over in TOS. I'm not sure if we've actually covered that episode by now. But he also played Grady over in Past Tense. You know, whoosh, I'm invisible, that guy. And all three of them hold their roles pretty well. Interestingly enough, Braga hated this episode, didn't like the fact that they were going on familiar races, and felt like it was showing the desperation of the early season. Because, well, one of the things we do know is the Enterprise creative staff were flailing wildly trying to figure out what they wanted to do with their show, and I don't want to say they're failing at it, but, well, they were. I don't mean the show itself was failing. I mean they were failing at their stated intent of figuring out what the show was about. It's one of the reasons why early Enterprise bounces around in the type of show it is so much. What's interesting is Sussman, who actually worked on the writing of this episode, actually defended this, but then again he was only defending the inclusion of the Ferengi, which, if we're being honest, was already stupid. The moment that the Ferengi were mentioned as an interstellar race that another race they'd encountered had already encountered should have been the moment knowledge of the Ferengi entered Federation databanks. But no. You'll notice they never, ever call them Ferengi in the whole episode. Let's just get the continuity thing out of the way really quick. Can we do that? Okay, cool. It is nonsense to think that they actually had a full hostile encounter with a Ferengi Marauder. And then none of that information entered the databases for any relevance for the next 150-ish years. I need to figure out the timeline at some point. I'm going to do that right now. Hang on, hang on. Right now, live on camera. Because I keep referencing dates and I don't know the dates. So hang on a second. Give me a moment. I'm just gonna pull this up here. Okay, so we've got Enterprise. So this is 2151. Okay, let's scroll down a lot until we get to TNG season one. That's Last Outpost, which is 2364. So uh, what is that? 13, 213 years. Yep, 213 years later. There you go. We've got a we've got a number now. You can tell I'm very professional because I look up things after I've already hit the record button. It, may, it is absolute nonsense that they had this major encounter and then have had no other encounters of any substance with the Ferengi Alliance who are a galactic power, I remind you, in 213 years. That is insanity. And that's part of the problem. The fact that they actually mentioned this all the way back here and the fact that they have this incident and then it never comes up and we never encounter them now that that second part is important having one encounter and then that one encounter being a log entry which then comes up when they encounter the ferengi proper sure but the ferengi are far enough in to have already been in this part of space very close to earth remember enterprise isn't all that far out not really they work tracking the distance for a bit there they've kind of stopped doing that but we do know that this is still only just a bit over six months out at relative warps, and they've gone back and they've gone forward and they've gone in all sorts of directions. They are not that far from Earth. And yet the Ferengi are here in what is effectively the local neighborhood, in an interstellar sense. And yet, despite that fact, no interaction with the Ferengi for 213 years. Bullcrap. And that's why it bothers me. I hate to keep hammering this point on, but I want to at least show my record for why it bothers me. It doesn't bother me that they pull something from popular track and use it as a form of fan service. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is they do it in a way that actively contradicts any kind of logic or reason and gets in the way of my enjoyment. Remember, I like this episode. This is probably my second favorite episode in the series so far. But the entire premise is stupid but then Star Trek is a master of taking something ridiculous and making it into something that I actually enjoy, isn't it? Huh. I call that the Cloud Effect. Named after... Funnily enough, Stupid Premise Good Execution and Great Premise Terrible Execution are both named after Voyager. We've got the Cloud Effect and Voyager Effect. Huh. Anyways. But that is Star Trek in a nutshell, isn't it? I am still going to bring up the complaint, but moving on. So the Ferengi and the Cold Open work pretty well. First of all, for anybody who's never actually seen this, you know, it's it's an alien ship of marauders who have, are attacking the Enterprise. Oh, no! But for those of you who are familiar with the show, it's the Ferengi. The irony is something like this is designed to be a good Cold Open because it plays on your knowledge of the show and the franchise. To be like, oh, my God, it's the Ferengi. Here's the problem. Most people I know who saw this didn't say, oh, my God, it's the Ferengi. They said... Wait, what are the Ferengi doing here? That doesn't make sense. Again, some continuity stuff can be danced around, and a lot of the references to TOS in Enterprise actually work pretty well. I've been pointing them out bit by bit as we go, because there's been quite a few. This one, not so much. Referencing TNG in Enterprise is a little bit trickier. But again, let's move on from that, like I said. I do gotta admit, though, it's really pathetic how easily they take over the ship, right? I mean, you'd think the the NX-01, the flagship of Starfleet, and their only NX ship out in service right now, would be a little little harder to take over, right? Except that tracks, doesn't it? Because remember, not only did the Ferengi take over a Galaxy-class ship with broken birds of prey, that would be rascals, but um, <clears throat> you remember that time when the Enterprise original over in TOS was taken over by hippies? Because I do. We need to get better security in Starfleet. There's nothing else for it. Can we get Odo involved? That might help. Hey, Odo, do you mind lending us some frickin' Jibadar? Anyway, so... There is something amusing about watching Jeffrey Combs' character. He plays Krem in this episode. Lust after T'Pol. Because Jeffrey Combs plays Shran, for those of you not aware of that fact. I would forgive you if you didn't know that, because Jeffrey Combs is amazing and is probably, I'd say, my third or fourth favorite overall guest star in all of Star Trek. He's way up there. He is absolutely awesome. Uh, The only ones who contest him are Dwight Schultz and John DeLancey for me personally. And he actually nails his role. Like I said, the, the, the strong guest stars really help. Clint Howard, Ethan Phillips, and Jeffrey Combs all do a wonderful job of the Ferengi. And I think that's part of why it works so well. They are bumbling, inept, and stupid, but in a sufficiently endearing way that I'm kind of with it, you know? Maybe you don't know. Maybe you hate this episode. And no judgment. As always, I'm looking forward to your comments in the, in the section below. Where, oh my god, you're saying what about me? Um, so So then Tucker effortlessly gets out of uh, Decon. I'd raise a complaint about that, but at least it's probably just a props issue. Because it looks like it would be pathetic to get out. But he at least has to fiddle with something. You'd think there'd be like some kind of security. But then again, this ship was just taken over in five seconds by a random artifact putting gas into the air. So, uh, as I already mentioned, security's not really a high priority here. If only we had some like military, I don't know, military commanding officers or something. I, I don't know. Maybe that would help out a little bit. That's a pipe dream, though. So Tucker gets out, walks around in his undies for a while. Thankfully, there's not a lot of shots of his junk, unlike the last time this came up. So credit on the director. I actually looked up the director. He's only directed two works of Enterprise. Excuse me, two works of Star Trek ever. This and uh, Vision something. I don't even remember the other episode. I didn't recognize the guy at all. But um, so the Ferengi are stupid. See, I have a note here. I'm just going to read it, my own note to you. Uh, No, I'm not, because this is horribly shorthanded. Let me read what I mean with this note. So then the Sverangi start stealing useless junk everywhere they can. You'd think they'd have scanners or something in order to determine what has value. Then I remembered that these are stupid joke characters. Remember, their ship is not that big, and they take a bunch of stuff that takes up useless space. In fact, they contemplate stealing a chair. Very next line. Oh, no, they actually steal the chair. At one point, they stuff a pecan pie in a bag. This is kind of the inverse of the Klingon raiders earlier, which were quietly in the background horrific, and I don't think the writers thought it through. In this case, these guys are bumblingly inept, and I think the writers did think it through. I even have a theory about this, which we'll get into in a minute. I like mucks socks, by the way. That was a nice touch. So Krem makes a girl pile. Remember that for a second. And they do this little inverse translator scene, which is actually kind of neat, because it's the same kind of scene we've seen several times with the Enterprise crew, just it's the Ferengi trying to get the translator to work rather than elsewise. Now, there's this bit where... Ulus, which is Ethan Phillips' character, he's the only Ferengi who's portrayed as even remotely competent. I want you to remember that, too, for for later. And he threatens to go take all the girls and enslave them. And then Archer's like, wait, no! I, I'll tell you where the vault is, but I keep a percentage of it. Now, this is the first time I've seen Jonathan Archer be competent in this entire show. It's nice to see. In fact, it's actually legitimately enjoyable to watch him, Tucker, and T'Pol, it's the main three, of course, talk their way, and manipulate their way around the Ferengi, pretty much from this moment onwards. So, credit where credit is due, but it's weird that this is the first time I see any competency. He picks up very quickly on what's going on, and very quickly identifies their motives in order to mo- work his way around it. Then he starts picking at Krem in order to pull him to his side, and then stages the incident with Archer, excuse me, Archer, with, with uh, Tucker and Depaul in order to finish off these guys. And Half the time I'm sitting here thinking, this feels needlessly complicated, but at the same time, they are fighting a foe which has weapons, and they do not. They have no armor, they have no crew. Being cautious is something I can forgive. What they do boils down to antics, but A, this is a comedy episode, and B, again, it is probably more safe to ensure the enemy is completely in a place where they can't harm anyone or anything other than each other before you start firing. So, I'm actually kind of with that. Question. Do you think Ulysses was actually going to enslave the women? Now, I bet... Go ahead and answer in the comments. I'll wait a second. I'll wait. Go ahead and pause the video. Okay, now that you've unpaused the video, I bet the overwhelming majority have said, of course he was. I don't think he was. There's nothing that seems to indicate that they were totally down with enslaving these people. Now, I know that sounds strange, but I want to give two pieces of evidence for this. First of all, this is a comedy episode. Now, That's depending on the writer factor, which I've already mentioned, to give enough trust in the writers to think this thing out enough in order to presume that they actually wanted this to not be horrific. That is admittedly a presumption on my part. But, but, the second piece of evidence is, he the way Ulis mentions the enslavement thing is more the way you would use a negotiating tactic rather than an actual byproduct of a planning. By which I mean... If you if the, the scene was changed around so that he said, I suppose I'll just start killing off your crew member one by one in order to get, convince you to tell me where the microfilm is, it wouldn't really change anything. In short, while he may have been willing to enslave them as a last-ditch resort, you'll notice he makes no effort to do so at just about any point up till that. And the only time it even comes up is when uh, Muck that's Clint Howard's character, mentions that he's taking the women as his, his, his part of the payment, which is something ulysses wasn't even down for, you'll notice. Just think about that for a second. I only point all this out because it was something that was on my mind, and it does make the episode slightly less horrifying, because, as we'll find out later, Orion slave trading is a real thing. So that's neat. One little tidbit that's kind of cool. There's this bit where uh, Krem, who, of course, Krem is the Frangie with the most screen time. Of course, Jeffrey Combs is. He mentions 173 rules. I actually looked it up. In DS9, there's 285 rules. I think that one was deliberate. Sussman is a Trek geek. He even, as he defended this episode, mentioned that uh, First Contact was actually back in Roswell. So he knows at least a few tidbits about this show. I like to think that that was a deliberate change because, I mean, obviously new uh, rules of uh, acquisition are going to be added over time by new uh, neguses as history goes on, right? I mean, that actually makes sense. So I I just thought that was a nice little touch. So, um, Krem is very amiable. It's actually funny. I I wonder if that's just a thing Jeffrey Combs writes into his character uh, requirements. Like, these are the kind of roles I'll take. Has to be amiable i may be a mass murdering psychopath or uh, you know a horrific uh, person who is working for a oppressive government or a horrific thing who is working for an oppressive government good bonus points if you can guess both characters i just referenced but in almost all of his presentation including the two I just referenced he's amiable he's nice he's friendly hey what's going on oh it's very nice and he it, but he manages to be amiable without the sleaze factor as krem which he's usually got the sleaze factor coated on there like with uh, Yun, for example because Yun is a monster really at least the, the most of the wayuns we see there's that one wayun he was pretty cool but krem's just kind of like hey well, could you move that a little bit over there I mean, I know I'm technically forcing you to do hard labor for me, but is there any chance... Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go get you something to eat and something to drink. Yeah, no problem. Here you go. Here you go. Let me let me unchain you. He's just kind of pleasant about the whole thing. It's kind of weird to watch, actually. <laughs> naturally, Archer talks, circles around him. And naturally, despite the fact that Ferengi have excellent hearing, which is a well-established fact of Star Trek lore, their excellent hearing doesn't help them hear Archer and Tucker talking about things, so whatever. Um... Paul wakes up, first thing she sees is Tucker and his undies, and she's just like, <laughs> it's nicely understated. I don't think for a moment she thinks something untoward actually went on. I think this is more of just a, all right, what happened? What's going on? And Tucker's the one who gets defensive, like, I just... <sighs> you'll notice one of the next things he does after that scene is he gets a uniform on probably getting a little self-conscious. I don't blame him. Although, if I looked like Trenir at that point in his life, I would be a little more okay with wearing less clothing. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, Ullis comes across as the only competent one of this group. I mentioned that before. I've given a theory before that the Ferengi are kind of like the Drow or the Dwarves of Orzammar, or a bunch of other uh, civilizations I can mention, usually in fiction. The idea is there's a core group of actually intelligent people who basically keep the whole society-slash-organization-slash-kingdom-whatever-functional. then there's all the idiots. Most of what we tend to see in these fictional works are the idiots, who are so backstabbing and so manipulative and so stupid and so easy to foil that they come across as pathetic. This is actually reinforced over in Deep Space Nine. The Nagus, you know, the Nagus Zek, is probably one of the competent ones, because even though he comes across as hehehehe, <laughs> the fact is he repeatedly demonstrates his ability to have long-term thinking and to completely manipulate all his way around everyone else around him. Frankly, Quark's mother, uh, I can't remember her name right now, would also be one of the smart ones, and so forth and so on. Just interesting to think of, because I wonder if uh, Ulis here, that would be Ethan Phillips' character, is one of the smart ones. He's still easy to manipulate, though, and I don't think it was intended that way. In fact, I think the way the episode actually intended it was more like, they're all the dumb ones, and this is what happens when the dumb ones are running each other without one of the smart ones to help them. I could be re- reading too much into it. It is a comedy episode, but it's what you're here for, right? And as usual, I'm in- in- interested to hear your thoughts. So, <clears throat> there's uh, there's this wonderful bit where DePaul starts messing with them in order to sow dissent, which is important for the overall plan. Hiding the scanners in the separate bag, making the alert go off so they're already irritable. Then, cut to them interrogating a dog... Ha ha. They even played the oboe music for this. The typical doo doo do 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 I think it's an oboe. It might be a tuba. Either way, it's the same approach to music. It's the ha ha, these guys are ridiculous kind of music. I gotta say, that is probably one of the most well-behaved dogs I've ever seen, by the way. We know that Porthos will bark at Silic. That actually has already happened at this point in time. But he just kind of sits there as the Ferengi pick him up and manhandle him, and put him down to the cage, and he's just kind of like, okay, it's cool. I bet that poor puppy got a lot of puppy treats after that. I'm just saying. Uh, So then Tucker gets caught. Very deliberate, obviously. Bites the ear. Ow. Given what we know about Ferengi, that is basically the equivalent of a nice big knee to the groin. So that's got to be pleasant. Then we see the energy whip. I'm going to take a quick sidebar here, if that's okay with you guys. Because I really like the way they use the energy whip here. Uh, we we stopped seeing the energy whip mostly because back in TNG season one, which I remind you is 213 years after this, uh, that in real life terms happened close to uh, what would that be? 17, 16? No, it would be 17 or 13. I'm not sure which because I'm doing my math in the inverse. Uh, you over a decade ago in real life terms. So technology's moved forward a little bit. My point being. For just one second, it seemed like the Ferengi could actually be threatening, which I know is a weird thing to comment on. I mean, we've already seen threatening Ferengi before on DS9. uh, I can't remember the guy, the the liquidator guy, the guy who just really wants to to kill the Gemini. You remember that guy? He's actually referenced a few times other than the time when he shows up. So I was kind of with the idea, because it seems like the Energy Whip is actually a threatening weapon. And you'll notice he's the only one who has one. Everyone else has those dinky little pistols. He's got this big old thing. They don't do anything with it. They never go anywhere with it, and it never comes up again. But I found myself just thinking, what could they have done with that idea? Of of that of that being an actual militant weapon, the kind of thing he got maybe from the military, or maybe that's kind of how the Ferengi do business with other people, or just I don't know, something. But alas, it's just there for the fan service. It's a decent scene. I'm I'm willing to give it. And again, it looks way better than the stupid foam crap back in last outpost, so whatever. So Tucker gets hit by that. This is when the sunk cost fallacy really comes into play. Now I've heard some people misuse that terminology. sunk cost fallacy is actually a pretty specific slice of economic physiology. Excuse me. It, it, it actually refers to one of five different scenarios, but the simplest way to put it is I have already used money on this, or I have already spent time on this, or I've already invested myself into this in some way, therefore it has to have value. That's the fallacy, the presumption of value, regardless of any other factors, because it might have value. It might actually legitimately be a thing that has value and you want to keep investing in it. And that's why I point out that some people misuse that term. I've seen several people who say something where it's like, oh, you're just sunk cost fallacy. It's like, no, I'm continuing to invest in something that is paying off. <laughs> but I bring that up here because this is another reason why I think that Ulis is probably one of the stupid Ferengi. Because he falls for that hard Several times he is given the option to just bail. And if he had done so, he would have gotten away scot-free with all his loot. But no, he insists on continuing to go to find the gold. Now we know why. It is straight up uh, sunk cost fallacy because he is trying to avert loss. That's one of the five specific things that leads to sunk cost fallacy. He wants to ensure that all the time and effort and deals he's made to make this one big hit happen pay off. That's his mentality. We get the impression, they never say it out light, outright, and I do kind of, I'm willing to give them some credit on this one. We get the impression that this is basically intended to be a one-off raid. That he is not a regular raider, but he specifically laid this trap and specifically ensured that one of the ships, that that's decent ship, probably this exact ship, came by. Already had his ship ready to go, already had his crew on board with this, already had arranged for this, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to get their vault, we're going to take their money, and we're going to be rich. This was his big score. So walking away from something you touted as a big score, well, that's going to be a big hit to your credibility, isn't it? And you're not going to have as much profit for yourself or to share with the crew you promised profit, which means you now have the classic pirate captain problem, since a pirate captain only really rules at the behest of their crew. If their crew decide they should not rule, they are screwed. So... (laughs) <laughs> he insists on finding this thing, and this leads to the staged argument between Tucker and Archer, which is probably the best scene in the whole episode for me. They they just nail it. They, there's no play-acting, there's no fake-acting. They do a good job of portraying what they are actually trying to portray. Bravo. Then Tipal dances circles around Krem, metaphorically speaking. I find myself wondering, why does the scene go on as long as it does? It's not super long. But she manages to get in melee range of him, and he lowers his gun within probably about the first 10 seconds. Then she continues to spin her yarn, and continues, and continues, and then says, please take me with you, and then gives him umox for a bit, before finally giving him the nerve pinch. I get it, it's a comedy episode, but it just seems like a weirdly out-of-place scene, especially since she's obviously bothered by this whole series of events. Then she goes and expresses her Vulcan sense of humor when she hesitates to unlock Archer. That was good. Oh, and they also mention that uh, Vulcan High Command and Starfleet will both be informed of this, which makes perfect sense why we will have no contact with these people for more than two centuries. I hate to keep bringing it up, but it's still a dumb premise. Good episode, though. Good performances and genuinely decent humor. We didn't even hear English for like the first ten minutes, not counting Archer. It's harder than it sounds to you to act in another language that, that is not a real language or a language that is your uh, default one. Because what you have to do is you have to get across tonality and intonation and concepts, and you have to act while you're remembering lines that are in your head nonsense, right? If I just start saying blah instead of English, you know, blah 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 blah. Blah um blah 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 blah. blah, blah. And well that's easy because I was just repeating the same word over and over. Now imagine doing that with another language which you can screw up constantly. Now, of course, Ferengi is not a real language, unlike, say, Klingon, but you can see how that's a task, and they do a good job with it. Again, the three guest stars really help carry this episode, in my opinion. Before I cut off, I want to give you a little bit of trivia. Obviously, I do a little bit of prep work and research work for you know large chunks of episodes, so I've already done a little bit of looking into the rest of all of Season 1. I haven't started looking at Season 2 yet. I'm going to save that for when I get through Shockwave. But I bring that up because I don't remember these episodes. You may remember I talked about on both the Risa episodes over on TNG and DS9 that I didn't have any significant memories of this one on Enterprise, and I don't. I know it's here. It's two days, two nights. It's coming up. But I don't really remember much about it other than a book, I think, or something like that. I don't know. I might be confusing it with something else. But that's my point. We're officially off the map for me. I had at least vague memories of season one up to this episode, but I have nothing for the upcoming ones. I have seen these episodes before, I swear! I just have no memory of them, so this will effectively be new television for me, at least until we get to season two, and then we'll reevaluate. As I already mentioned, season one and season two of Enterprise didn't exactly make a good impact on I me, and so far we're up to three episodes that I'm interested in rewatching sometime in the future, counting this one. It'll be interesting to go forward through these, which I will be doing tomorrow, and I hope to see you guys next week.